Hello and welcome back to the Fall of the Roman Empire. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 42 called Drifting into the 5th Century. In the last episode, we talked about how the Roman Empire became more divided after the Emperor Theodosius I died in 395, when his two sons, Arcadius and Honorius, took over as emperors in the East and West. And we talked about how it wasn't the fact of having two emperors, which was the problem, since the empire had often had more than two emperors in the past, and had still maintained a unity of purpose, for example, with Diocletian's Tetrarchy. But in 395, something changed, and this really began with the fact that Arcadius and Honorius were under age. Arcadius was 17 and Honorius just 11, so regents had to step in to rule for them. And even when they grew older, unfortunately for the Romans, the Theodosian genes proved to be duds, for both emperors were totally unsuited to the demands of the job and remained weak-willed puppets of their regents until they died. And so it was the regents who ruled the empire. And given that the regents in the west and east were never going to view each other as anything other than rivals, the Roman empire became an empire divided and at war with itself. And the man who took full advantage of this, as we heard in the last episode, was Alaric, king of the Visigoths, who rebelled against Roman rule in 395, essentially because the eastern and western armies failed to unite against him. On two occasions, Stilicho, the commander-in-chief in the west, was on the point of potentially defeating him, and both times the eastern army basically refused to cooperate, and he escaped. Indeed, the eastern Praetorian prefect, Eutropius, who was Stilicho's key rival, then gave Alaric a position in the Roman army as Magister Militum of the eastern half of Illyria, so that he and his Visigoths could serve as a buffer against Stilicho. So, let's rejoin the story in 397, after Stilicho had taken his army back to Italy from Greece, and Alaric was installed in Illyria. For at this point, a totally new development suddenly gripped the empire. This was the decision by the governor of North Africa, Gildo, to switch his allegiance from west to east. Now, the reasons for this were basically due to a family dispute. First, Gildo had fallen out with his brother, Mesgazel, who had fled to Rome, but only after Gildo had actually murdered his wife and two sons. Not surprisingly, Gildo was worried that his brother would now do anything to take his revenge, and the most obvious way of doing this was to get Stilicho to intervene and punish him. Second, because Gildo's daughter Salvina was in Constantinople, where she'd married a relative of the Emperor Theodosius, Gildo already had a foot firmly in the Eastern Empire's camp, and he now decided to use this to help him. So in 397, he announced he was switching his allegiance from west to east. Eutropius, the chief minister in the east and Stilicho's main rival, welcomed Gildo's defection as an opportunity to undermine Stilicho further. Indeed, by having both Gildo and Alaric as Stilicho's enemies, Eutropius felt confident enough to lead the eastern army into Syria to fight a Hunnic invasion of the Middle East. Now, let's just stop there for a moment, because you might rightly say, the Huns invading the Middle East, that sounds a pretty big deal. 
And you'd be absolutely right. But unfortunately, we have very little information about it. What we do know is that this was the first time that the Huns had directly attacked the Roman Empire, since before then they had only indirectly affected it by pushing the Goths west into the empire, which, as you know, led to the Battle of Adrianople in 378. But it seems that in 395, a large force of Huns crossed over the Caucasus Mountains between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea and invaded both Roman and Persian Armenia before advancing into Roman Syria and also heading towards the Persian capital, Ctesiphon. As I mentioned, it's a great shame we don't have more source material on this invasion for two reasons. One, it sounds a very significant event – And two, the Romans say the Huns were defeated. Huns defeated? That can't be right, I hear you say, because we all know the Huns were invincible. And that's why the Goths fled from them to the safety of the Roman Empire. Well, the Romans say that the Huns reached Antioch, the great Roman centre of Syria, and the Persian capital, Ctesiphon. Then in 398, Eutropius led the eastern army against them, and the Huns retreated back into the Caucasus. That's pretty much all we know about this Hunnic invasion, apart from the fact that Eutropius claimed he'd won a great victory. But nobody actually mentions a battle. So, what really happened? Well, I don't think we'll ever know the full story, but one contemporary source, the Roman writer Priscus, writing decades after the event, said that the Huns' objective was only a short-term raid to relieve the pressures of a particularly bad famine on the steppe lands. This seems to me to be a pretty likely explanation of what was really going on. And as we've discussed in episode 36, it could well have been a mega drought that brought the Huns into contact with Europe in the first place. So it seems quite plausible that continuing drought caused a famine on the western steppes, which pushed them into making a raid into the Roman and Persian empires to replenish their supplies. Contemporary sources also say the Huns were particularly keen to capture and transport livestock, which makes sense if their own herds of cattle, which were the basis of their livelihoods, had been depleted. I think this might also explain why the Roman sources say they defeated the Huns, but there's no mention of a battle. The truth, I think, was that after the Huns got what they wanted, they simply went back home. But of course, the Romans didn't need to say that, and instead, it was easy for Eutropius to make up a story that he defeated them and sent them packing. And that's exactly what he did. But we all know, of course, that nobody defeats the Huns. I think it's also worth mentioning that after 398, the Huns switched their focus from the east to the west, and that was one of the main reasons why the Western Empire fell, but the Eastern didn't. But we'll come back to that subject in a lot more detail in future episodes. For now, let's get back to Stilicho and Gildo, for at exactly the same time that Eutropius was claiming victory over the Huns, Stilicho was working on what to do with Gildo's revolt in Africa, and he came up with one of his best strategies ever. When Gildo announced his switch, he also reduced the grain supply from North Africa to Italy. He didn't cut it completely, he just reduced it a bit to show who was boss, and to intimidate Stilicho and to deter him from attacking North Africa, since he would just cut it off completely. But Gildo's strategy 
badly backfired. There was considerable alarm in Rome about Gildo's revolt, especially the cut in the grain supply. Stilicho was popular in the Senate and had a strong ally in a very prominent senator called Symmachus, and he was able to use this to his advantage. He gave the Senate increased powers, and they used these to declare Gildo a hostis publicus, enemy of the state, just as the Senate in Constantinople had passed the same about him. He also arranged for supplies of grain from Gaul to be rushed into Italy to prevent a famine. With the Senate and the people of Italy backing him, he proposed an attack on Gildo. Again, he showed excellent judgment in not choosing to lead the expedition himself, which would have taken him away from the court politics in Milan and Rome, but chose instead Gildo's brother Mescazel. What better choice than the wronged brother who was itching to avenge the murder of his wife and sons? Stilicho gave him 5,000 legionaries, and in November 397, he set sail for Africa from Pisa. The sources are brief on what happened next, but it seems that Mezgazel defeated his brother fairly easily, and Gildo fled and committed suicide. Victory had been achieved more quickly and completely than anyone had expected. Not only was the grain supply to Italy restored, but Gildo's lands were confiscated for the state, providing Stilicho with some much-needed revenue to pay his army. Mezgazel returned triumphantly to Milan, but his glory was short-lived. Stilicho was alert to his growing popularity as the man who had restored the grain supply. When he was crossing a bridge with Stilicho, he apparently slipped and fell into the river where he drowned. Although Stilicho protested his innocence, the accusing finger was pointed at him by the historian Zosimus. This was almost certainly accurate. Stilicho had neatly eliminated a potential rival, but the Roman Senate and people were more than happy to believe his version of events. So, Gildo's revolt actually served to strengthen Stilicho's position in the West. The Senate regarded him more favourably than ever before, and the 14-year-old Honorius was even more grateful to his guardian for protecting him. To help Stilicho some more, at the same time, his main rival, Eutropius, was toppled from power as quickly as he had risen. This happened because he made a number of major political blunders. First, to celebrate his so-called victory over the Huns, he secured the nomination to be consul for 399. As you know, the appointment of consuls was more symbolic than anything else, and harked back to the days of Augustus when emperors pretended to be republican consuls rather than emperors. But for Eutropius, there was one problem. As I mentioned previously, he was a eunuch. Now, in Rome's entire 1,000-year history, there had never been a consul who was a eunuch. Eunuchs were accepted in many jobs, and there had been some government ministers who were eunuchs. But a eunuch being a consul was something altogether different. Eutropius hadn't realised how shocked Roman society was. The Western Senate in Rome rejected it outright. The weak-willed Emperor Arcadius accepted it. 
but not for long, since Eutropius's blunders continued to multiply. His next one was with the army. After his victory over the Huns, he tried to run the army down to prevent any of its generals from becoming too powerful and a threat to him. But he still promoted Alaric to a rank equal to them. Promoting a rebellious Gothic leader over the heads of loyal generals was simply too much for them. A loyal Gothic commander called Tribigild rebelled in Anatolia. Eutropius sent the only general he trusted against him, a Roman called Leo, but he was defeated and killed. Eutropius turned to another Gothic general called Gainus to put the rebellion down, but Gainus had fought with Stilicho against Alaric and also felt slighted by Alaric's promotion. He refused to fight Tribigild and petitioned the Emperor Arcadius to get rid of Eutropius, in return for which both he and Tribigild would swear their loyalty to the Emperor. Now, it's doubtful the weak-willed Arcadius would have been swayed by this were it not for Eutropius's third and perhaps most important blunder, which was to offend Arcadius's wife Eudocia. You'll remember that it was Eutropius himself who found and introduced Eudocia to Arcadius as a way of increasing his own influence over the emperor. But he seriously underestimated Eudocia. He chose her because she was exceptionally beautiful and Arcadius was immediately captivated by her. But she wasn't just good-looking. She was also a ruthless and powerful political operator in her own right. Not only did she completely dominate the emperor, but she was also increasingly irritated by Eutropius, who resented her growing independence. One story is that she finally decided to get rid of him when Eutropius was so afraid of losing his own control over the emperor that he insisted he had to approve all meetings booked in the emperor's diary, even those with his own wife. She demanded that Arcadius dismiss Eutropius, which he reluctantly did since he was apparently very fond of him. He was exiled to Cyprus in 399 and, at an unknown later date, was executed for treason. So much then for Eutropius, but the consequences of his fall from power were not exactly what you might expect. First, he was replaced by a minister called Aurelian, previously the prefect of Constantinople. He was anti-German and hostile to the Gothic general Gainus, who managed to have him exiled and himself made commander-in-chief of the Eastern Army, similar to Stilicho's position in the West. However, when Gainus entered Constantinople, he was met by a population that resented the growing power of the Goths in the Roman army and government. Yet again, it proved to be the emperor's wife Eudocia who called the shots. She managed to strengthen her own position by getting Arcadius to crown her officially empress on the 9th of January 400, and she also didn't like the Germans. So she fell out with Gainus, who decided it was in his best interest to leave the city, feigning illness. He was followed by 7,000 of his Gothic troops. But the Greek-Roman population rose up against the Goths as they marched through the streets and slaughtered them to a man. Gainus took his remaining Gothic soldiers into Thrace, which he pillaged until he was challenged by the new Roman commander-in-chief called Fravita and defeated. Fravita was in fact another Goth, but a highly Romanized one with a Roman wife and had always been a loyal soldier in the regular Roman army. 
Kainas fled across the Danube, where he sought refuge with the Western Huns, led at this time by Uldin. However, little did he know that Uldin regarded the Roman Empire as an ally against the Germans, who were their prime focus for subjugation. Consequently, Uldin beheaded him and sent his head to Arcadius in Constantinople. In recognition, Arcadius rewarded Uldin with the Roman title of Comes, meaning count or senior general. With Gainus's removal, the anti-German minister Aurelian was recalled from exile and the Eastern Empire started to embark on an interestingly different course from the West. First and foremost, it was more anti-German, something that I think was to become a crucially important differentiator between the two halves of the empire, and one which would, over time, enable the East to resist the growing Germanization or barbarization, as historians tend to call it, of the Roman army. Second, there was something of a rapprochement between the two halves of the empire. After Eutropius's dismissal, the condemnation of Stilicho as hostis publicus ceased. The news that Eudocia had given birth to a son in 401 called Theodosius, having already had three daughters, also caused Stilicho to give up any claim to be parens principum over Arcadius in the east, which had really been the cause of both Rufinus's and Eutropius's hostility towards him. Stilicho recognised that the Theodosian dynasty in the east was now strong and secure, even if in reality, of course, it was the Empress Eudocia who was running the show rather than the still clueless Emperor Arcadius. In 402, this newfound spirit of friendship was expressed in the joint declaration by East and West that their respective emperors, Arcadius and Honorius, were joint consuls. However, while the Roman world was celebrating a return to something approaching normality, there was someone who was getting very nervous about both these improving relations between East and West, as well as the growing anti-German sentiment. And that, of course, was Alaric. You'll remember that it was Eutropius who'd been Alaric's main supporter, and his demise meant that Alaric was cast into the wilderness. Indeed, after 400, it's likely that Aurelian, Eutropius's replacement, stopped paying him as Magister Militum for Illyria. In addition, despite the fact that both of the main generals in the eastern army, Fravita and Sarus, were Goths, they were of a more highly Romanized variety than Alaric, and both of them detested Alaric and the preferential treatment he'd received from Eutropius. Consequently, Alaric was well aware that it would probably not be long before the Eastern Roman army was dispatched to destroy him. So, he did something quite unexpected. He offered his services to Stilicho, his arch-enemy. But this didn't work. Both Stilicho and the Roman Senate saw through his game. It is perhaps surprising that Stilicho didn't move against Alaric at this moment, but he was probably deterred from doing this by the possibility that the now more friendly Eastern Empire might view it as an attempt to take control of Illyria from them and to renew hostilities. 
So, rebuffed by Stilicho, Alaric decided to turn upside down the old adage of if you can't beat them, join them, by declaring war on Stilicho. External forces also played a part here. In the summer of 401, a group of Vandals and Alans invaded Roman Raetia and Noricum in modern-day Austria. Stilicho rushed with the bulk of the Italian army to confront them. Alaric saw an opportunity. With Stilicho's legionaries engaged in Raetia, he invaded Italy. A new and shocking war had begun. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, of course, I'd be delighted for any ratings or reviews in whichever podcast app you use. And next week, we'll continue with the war between Stilicho and Alaric. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>